In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, we read these words. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible's clear that we should be praying for our king. On the 8th of September uh, 2022, King Charles III became king following the death of his mother, Queen Elizabeth. But a question that is often raised is maybe some people were more comfortable praying for Queen Elizabeth with her obvious Christian faith than praying for Charles. In the Old Testament, you might think that it made sense to pray for the king. The nation was a theocracy, a Jewish king who worshipped God. So, of course, the people would pray for his success. King David was a man after God's own heart. And, of course, God's people would want to pray for his success. But you have to remember that not all kings followed in the way of David. Some of them are described as following the way of Ahab and doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And in the New Testament times, when some of the New Testament writers are calling on us to be praying for our leaders, you have to remember they're living in the Roman Empire under various Caesars. They were no friend of Christians. We know that one of them, Nero, would ultimately have Peter executed. And yet the New Testament writers repeatedly call on us to submit to those in authority and to pray for them as God's appointed kings. If the New Testament church could pray for Nero with his obvious hatred and persecution of the church, surely we today, regardless of our political views, can pray for our king, our prime minister, Rishi Sunak, our first minister, Nicola Sturgeon. We are called to pray for our leaders. But then the question becomes, how should we pray for them? What should we be praying for them? And that's where I think Psalm 20 can be so helpful for us. Remember, one of the purposes of the Psalms is often to help guide the structure, the format of our own prayers. And Psalm 20 is a prayer that helps us to think about how to pray for our King. One of the challenges of reading some of the passages in the Bible today is that we can sometimes feel that our culture is quite different from the ancient world. And so we read passages with our own bias, our own kind of preconceptions. And one aspect of our culture today that challenges the Bible's worldview is this kind of individualism, this kind of individualistic view of the world. And so people often come to the Bible and they even come to passages like Psalm 20 and they read them in an individualistic way. We think about our own personal walks without thinking of how we connect to the wider church and how we connect to our nation. And that can lead to misunderstandings about what the text is actually saying. But in Psalm 20, we have a royal psalm. It'd be very easy to take a verse or two out of context in this psalm and apply them to our experiences. But that's not what the psalm is about. Think, for example, of verse 4. May he grant your heart's desires and fulfill all your plans. You can see how Christians might take this verse, maybe put it on a greeting card, maybe send it to someone. It's easy to see the appeal of this idea that God would grant your heart's desires, that he would fulfill your plans. 
Maybe those who support the so-called prosperity gospel, health and wealth gospel, are right. That the Bible promises that if that God will give us what we want, we only have to name it and claim it. But we have to be careful when we read the Bible. We have to be careful to see the wider context here. Can we really put my name or your name into the psalm? Are we the you or the your? Or is there something more going on? Well, there is something more going on. And so as we look at the psalm, we have to be careful not to misread it. We have to remember the context, which is where verse 9 is so important. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Verse 9 makes it crystal clear the context of this whole psalm is about the king. It's a prayer for the king. A prayer for those in power. Not a prayer for us as individuals, but a prayer for those in leadership. This is a battle psalm. It was sung by the people of God as they, as they were led by their king into battle. It's a prayer for God's blessing on his people, but especially for their king. And while we might not be praying for our leaders as they go off to war today, we're still praying for them as they face many of the challenges and difficult decisions that they have to make. The arena of the battle might have changed today, but they still need God's blessing. And so in the psalm, verses 1 to 5, encourage us to pray for the success of our leaders. And verses 6 to 8 invite us to pray that our leaders wouldn't put their ultimate trust in their own strength, their own weaponry, their own resources, but instead would trust the Lord God. These are important lessons for us. But then I think verse 9 challenges everything. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Because while a lot of this psalm can be applied to earthly kings, there's something missing if we only apply it to earthly kings. Because ultimately this psalm is about our heavenly king, the Lord's anointed one, the Messiah, King Jesus, who will answer us when we call to him for help. Jesus is the king who truly answers our prayers. And so it's vital that we have both the the, the, the kind of understanding that the Jews would probably have had at the, initially that praying this for their king on earth. But we also then see the bigger picture, the deeper context of praying this for our heavenly king. And it's actually only as we pray this psalm for King Jesus that allows us to pray for our earthly kings. Remember, Jesus told us, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God. God is the one who commands us to pray for those in authority who instructs us that he has placed them in authority. And that means that we can pray for them even when we don't always see eye to eye with them because we know we have a higher king. So I want to look at this psalm in two parts. First of all, the prayer for our earthly king and then the prayer for our true king. So first, the prayer for our earthly king. Verses 1 to 5 encourage us to pray for the success of our human race. <laughs> The New Testament makes clear this isn't just about our kings, but about all those whom God has placed in authority over us. And that's why I think we can apply this psalm to our king, but also to our political leaders and others who are in the positions of authority. Peter tells us, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And as we read already, Paul wrote to Timothy to pray for all people, for kings, all in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet, godly, dignified lives. So although Psalm 20 is specifically speaking of a king, I think we are warranted in applying the principles, the model of prayer beyond that to all those in positions of authority 
especially as we think about our political leaders. And to begin with, we're to pray for their success. Verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favour your burnt sacrifices. This is a prayer to the covenant God, to Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, that our leaders, when they need help, when they're in trouble, when they're facing overwhelming odds, that God will hear their prayers and help them, that he will grant them success. This is the God who acted throughout history. This is the God who we're referred to here as the God of Jacob. Why the God of Jacob? Well, if you go back to Genesis 32, Genesis 35, we see that God is the one who protected Jacob. And in Genesis 35, verse 3, Jacob says, this is the God who answered me in the day of my distress. The God who answered Jacob in the day of his distress is the God who will answer the king in the day of his distress, who will always listen to his people. The point then of calling on this God of Jacob to protect the king is that this is the same person. We want our king to have the same experience of Jacob, to have that closeness to God, of knowing that God is the one who protects. The people ask the Lord to help their king from the sanctuary, from Zion. They ask that God would accept the king's sacrifices and burnt offerings. And we see here that in Israel, the king was the representative head of the people. He was responsible for offering the sacrifices for his own sin and for his people's sins. The priests were the ones who actually made the offerings, but the king had an obligation to support the worship of God. And that's where these references come from. The point is, though, for us especially, that the state, the king, had this obligation to support the worship of God. Now, we, of course, know that there are many kings who don't do any of this, who want nothing to do with God. But think for a moment of just how much more powerful these prayers for the king would be if the king or leader does worship God. That doesn't mean that we're not to pray for leaders who fail to worship God, but that we should call on them rightly to worship God. We should seek to challenge them, to call them to repentance, to call them to follow God. We should seek that, we should call on them to seek success through following God's word. And we should desire a true Christian prince, someone who will be a man or woman of God, a man of women of prayer, someone who will be praying to God, asking God's help, and we and who would rightly support the Church of Christ rather than hinder its work. That's why in the free church we believe in what's known as the establishment principle. This idea there should be this good relationship between church and state, while at the same time acknowledging that it doesn't work at the moment, that the state does not give the right support to the church. The state hinders often the work of the church but that the church is still called to fulfill her side of the obligation to pray for our leaders and to uphold them in prayer and to support in loyalty what they do. It might seem like an impossible dream in our society today that we could have a Christian ruler, but God does the impossible. But even if our kings or leaders don't measure up to this, we're still called to pray for them. The prayer continues in verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desires 
and fulfill your plans. May he shout for joy over your salvation. In the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. The psalmist is praying that God would answer the prayers, the desires of the heart of his king. Prayer comes out of an overflow of the desires of our hearts, of the plans of our hearts, that we bring those to God. We desire that God would do things. Now, you might wonder, what if the plans, the desires of our leaders' hearts are contrary to God's word? What if they are setting themselves up to do something that we know is wrong? Can we still pray this prayer for them? Well, we can, because we know that this prayer and the prayer that is granted is the prayer that is in accordance with God's will. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 tells us, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so maybe you start to see what is going on here. We're called to pray that God would grant our leaders' desires, our God would fulfill their plans. But we know that God will only grant the desires that are in accordance with his will. That God will give salvation. He will give victory. He will give success. He will fulfill their petitions if the king is praying in accordance with God's will. So rather than praying against our leaders and against their plans, as we might be tempted to do, especially if their plans, their desires at the moment go against God's will, we're encouraged to be loyal and positive and to pray that God would grant them success knowing that that true success only comes if what they are doing is in accordance with God's will. We want God to be at work in the hearts of our kings and our leaders so that they want to do what is right, so that their will is in accordance with God's will and then God will grant their prayers. And the desire here for the king who is seeking to follow God's word is the prayer that his heart, his affections would be aligned with the purposes of God and therefore they will be granted. So the first call is to pray for the success of our earthly leaders, remembering to pray whether we support them or not. But secondly, we're to pray that the king would realise his need of the Lord's help and that the true source of his success doesn't come from his military might, his chariots, his horses, but from his own abilities, or, or from his own abilities, but instead comes from the Lord. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed, He will answer him from his holy mountain with saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. The psalmist has this confidence that God will answer his prayer, but the confidence isn't based on the leader's abilities or the leader's resources. The Old Testament makes clear that the confidence of Israel and her king was always to be in God. When they tried to do it themselves, When they tried to rely on their own might, it fell apart. But when they trusted God, they had success. We see this in the life of King David himself. Remember when King David went to face Goliath. Before he threw a single stone from his sling, he boldly says, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. God fights for his anointed. The enemy is defeated, or in the words of the psalm, brought down to their knees, not by the strength of the warrior, but by God himself. And God's people prevail 
are risen up, stand firm, because God is on their side. In the ancient world, chariots, horses, was the kind of nuclear superpower. The horse or the chariot would be unbeatable weapons of the ancient world. If you had your chariots, you thought you would succeed. But this psalm tells us there is a higher power. The God who declared in Psalm 2 that his king would rule with supreme power in heaven and earth. The God we can trust even when we face the most powerful of enemies. And remember, God's people had experience of this. What happened when they crossed the Red Sea? Pharaoh's forces came with chariots and were utterly defeated because God is greater. There is a prayer here, though, that our kings, our leaders, those in authority would recognise this. We're called to pray for the success of the king, but we're also called to pray that they would see that that success comes from the Lord. That they would pray, as we pray for success, we're also praying for their salvation, that they would trust God. And this is a powerful prayer. It's a prayer that we can offer no matter what our political persuasions might be, no matter if we disagree with our leaders on particular policies or particular issues, we can pray that they would have success, knowing that true success comes when their desires are in accordance with God's will. And we can pray that they, as individuals, would come to recognise their complete dependence on God as the real source of strength, as the real source of success. So we pray for their success and we pray for their salvation as they come to know God. Someone who understood this was Queen Elizabeth. In her 2002 Christmas message, she said this, I know just how much I rely on my faith to guide me through the good times and the bad. Each day is a new beginning. I know that the only way to live my life is to try to do what is right, to take the long view, to give of my best in all that the day brings and to put my trust in God. Our prayer should be that our leaders would follow her example. But of course we know this isn't always true. We know that while this psalm helps us to think about how to pray for our earthly kings, our earthly leaders, we also know there are many times when our earthly kings are not the fulfilment of this psalm, when they fail to come even close to measuring up to this standard. In fact, we know that even the greatest kings in history, even the greatest king in the Old Testament times, King David, never measured up to this standard. Which is why, as well as using this psalm as a model for how we should be praying for our kings, our political leaders, we have to also remember to look beyond that to the eternal context of this psalm. That this psalm is not just a prayer for them, it's a prayer for our true king, Jesus. Psalm 20 is actually quite an unusual psalm. Even as a royal psalm, it's unusual. Most psalms are prayers that the psalmist delivers. Often it's the king that actually prays the prayer or is called to pray the prayer. But you notice the, the, the kind of way this psalm is written is that we are to pray this psalm, this prayer, for our king. Augustine of Hippo, the 4th century North African bishop, rightly says, it is not Christ who speaks, because that's often the case in the psalms, that Christ is the one speaking. It's not Christ who speaks, but the prophet speaks to Christ under the form of wishing, foretelling things to come. And this is what becomes clear in Psalm 20, verse 9. O Lord, save the king. Or as our tradition in the UK puts it, God save the king. The you or the your in this psalm refers not to you or me, but to the king of God's people. And so the deeper meaning of this psalm is opened up when we think about who it is 
that answers this prayer. Because you notice throughout the psalm, we have references to answers. In verse 1, the people pray that the Lord will answer the king. Verses 1 to 5 then are the prayer that the king's prayers will be answered, that he will have success. Verse 6 raises up some individual, presumably some kind of song leader, who affirms that God does answer the king. Verses 6 to 8 then expand on this assurance that God answers. And the psalm concludes in verse 9 with the part that we've just read, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. And that second part is critical. Only when our king is the man whose prayers are answered, may we as the king's people have hope that our prayers are answered. But notice in that final verse, may he answer us when we call, we are going beyond the idea of an earthly king. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Which king is going to answer us? Which king is able to answer our prayers? Only God himself. Known to us as Jesus, the one who came and answers when we call. And so the idea here is that it's when the king is a man whose prayers are heard by God the Father, we are able to bring our prayers to God the Father through our king. When the heartbeat of our prayers, the desires of our hearts, the longings of our king's prayers are in accord with God's will, they will be answered. So while it's right that we pray this psalm for our leaders, they will let us down. But our king is the one who answers. The one who answers our prayers, of course, is God. Our true king is the Messiah, God's anointed, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is, in the end, what it actually means to pray in Jesus' name, in the name of and for the victory of the king. It's the name of Jesus that means our prayers are answered because he is the true king. And so we can pray this psalm for earthly leaders, earthly kings, but we must also pray this psalm with confidence for Jesus, our king who we are sure fulfills this psalm perfectly. And that perspective starts to change everything about how we read the psalm. Verse 3 then becomes vital. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favour your burnt offerings. Remember, David, as the representative head of the people, was responsible for offering sacrifices for his sin and the sin of the people. But it was the priest that made the actual offering. But Jesus, as our head and our Lord, as our representative, also offered a sacrifice, not on his own behalf, but on our behalf, for our sins, for the ways that we have let God down time and time again. The sacrifice was his own body. He died on the cross on our behalf, And we pray that God would accept this sacrifice, the sacrifice our true king made. We pray, may he remember the offering that Jesus made and remember the burnt offering of his own body. Then verse 4, may he grant your heart's desires, fulfill all your plans, takes on a completely different focus when our king is Jesus, the one who we know's desires, wills, are perfectly in line with God our Father. We know that when they're in accordance with God's will, all of his prayers will be answered. The Lord, the king's hearts and affections must be so aligned to the purposes of God that they are completely in attune. And the only person who could ever do that is Jesus the Son. And so we can pray this petition about Jesus because we know that he is the only king who ever fulfilled this description. And we have to remember here, our king is not a stoic. Our King Jesus is not a kind of two-dimensional figure. 
He makes plans. He has desires in his heart. He wants them to succeed. He's full of emotion. This is who our God is. And when we pray this psalm, we're asking God in heaven to give our king what he deeply desires. And what a king he is. And so we pray and we continue in the psalm in verse 5. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Notice when this is about Jesus, we're no longer just rejoicing in a victory in a battle. We're rejoicing in the ultimate victory. Our very salvation causes us to raise our banners of praise to God. We, the king's loyal people, rejoice not when our individual desires are satisfied, but when our king is victorious. The banner was the standard of the king. It was like waving a flag of celebration. And we, therefore, are called to celebrate the victory of Jesus, our king. In fact, we do this every time we sing praises to our king. But you start to see how this is so far from our individualistic culture that we live in. The me-first approach. We usually rejoice, wave a cheerful flag when we succeed, when we have done well, when we pass an exam, where we get a new job, where we achieve something we celebrate. But this psalm is calling us to, to care more about and to celebrate more the victories of Jesus rather than our own success or failure. A wonderful but radical realignment of our lives that we're no longer focused on our desires, but on the desires of our King, on the victory of Jesus. And what is more, as we pray this psalm about Jesus, we're 100% guaranteed that he will be victorious. So when we read verse 6, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. We have this clear image that Jesus will succeed. As much as I might want success for myself, as much as you might want success for yourself or your children, you can never be sure of it. We can never make it happen. But with Jesus, our longings for success are granted. He will be victorious. Jesus worked in full accord with the Father's plan. And so the Lord gives victory to his anointed. And the people shout for joy and celebrate his victory. And we shout for joy because Jesus wins every battle. God will answer the king's prayer and give the king victory. This image of the right hand of God, the saving might of the right hand, is about the strength of God. That Jesus didn't rely on military strength. Many around Jesus, when he came to earth, thought that he would be this great military leader who would free the Jews from the Romans. But that wasn't the source of his strength. His strength came from the Lord. We too can be confident, or we can, we can kind of wrongly have confidence in the world's might. We can wrongly put our strength in our own plans, our own schemes, the resources that we have, the abilities that we have. But nothing in this world compares to the strength of God. As bleak as things might look at times, even when it seems that often Jesus' rule is being thwarted in our world, we know he is still on the throne. He is still in charge and his power is greater than anything in this world. The God who declared in Psalm 2 that his anointed king would rule the world in supreme power is the same God who we can trust. All who align themselves with this Messiah will share in this victory of the king because Jesus is Lord. Philippians promises us that one day every knee will bow before him. He will be victorious. And so the psalm is summed up. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. All through history of the Old Testament, from King David onwards, the people of God, if they were true believers, prayed this prayer for their king. 
but the human successors of, of David all disappointed, just like David himself had done. Some disappointed in the most horrendous of ways. Others did a better job, but all disappointed in the end. And yet, the longing continued that one day there would be a king who would rule in David's line forever, whose prayers would all be answered. A millennium or so later, a great descendant of David stood at the grave of a four-day a four day dead corpse. He went to the grave of his friend Lazarus, and he, had, and he prayed to God his Father that God would raise this man from the dead. And do you remember what Jesus prayed? Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. He goes on to explain how he said this for the benefit of the people. But see the context here to this psalm. I know that you always hear me. This is the king who is always heard by God, whose prayers are always granted. Here at last is the king who can fulfill all that the Old Testament hoped for. So what will it mean today for us as men and women of King Jesus to pray Psalm 20? Well, first of all, it means we can rejoice greatly that the prayers of Jesus are always answered. That even when he was in deep distress, even when the foundations of the world were being dismantled around him, the Father always heard his prayers. And we can shout for joy at his victory over death and over the one who has the power of death. Jesus defeated death at the cross. But the final victory is not yet here. And so second, as we go on to pray this psalm today, we cry to God our Father for the final victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That when he returns in glory, every knee will bow. But the biggest challenge for us to learn from this psalm is to root our deepest desires, not in our own desires, but in the victory of our King Jesus. To find our deepest joy when our King wins. By nature, our strongest desires, our strongest longings are for our own success, our own safety, our own comfort. Our joy is felt when we get these things for ourselves. Our joy is lost when something threatens our security. But this psalm teaches a reorientation, that what truly matters most is that the people of King Jesus, the worldwide Church of Christ, his body, face whatever comes their way, whether that's persecutions or whether that's exaltation, face whatever comes their way with a confidence that this is for the victory of their king. So we long to pray in accordance with Jesus' will. We want to be involved in his work in the world. And we should pray radical prayers that God would use us, even if that involves us having to give up what we desire for the good of our king and his desires. The psalm is designed to reshape our affections, to reshape our desires, so that we long for the victory of Jesus the vindication of his people, and ultimately his return in glory. And that also means that when we look at something like politics, when we look at kind of different leaders in the earthly realm, we realise that politics, these things, are not ultimate reality. The, 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 the kind of perfection of the world will not come through these earthly means. And so when Jesus calls us to pray for our earthly rulers, we can do so and mean it, even when we disagree with them. Even when we disagree with a lot of what they stand for. Because ultimately they are temporary. They are a temporary king. But Jesus is our true king forever and he reigns. And he calls us to pray for them. If you don't know this true king who came and won the victory for you by dying on the cross, then even today you're invited to pledge your allegiance to him by confessing your sins and rejoicing that his victory has secured your forgiveness. Jesus is 
the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. One day every knee will bow before him, but we shouldn't wait to that day to worship him. We should be worshipping him now as our King. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the confidence we can have in King Jesus, that you have conquered, that you have been victorious. We give you thanks that we can pray with confidence that all the desires of the heart of Jesus will be met. And we rejoice that the desires of Jesus are to rescue his people and to bring us into a relationship with you. But the very reason you hear our prayers is because of Jesus. Because we have been adopted as your children through his death on the cross and his victory over the grave. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged to pray for our King Jesus and to pray for earthly kings and earthly politicians as you have called us to do so, knowing that they are not ultimate, praying for their success, but also praying that they would come to know you for themselves. And likewise, we pray for any here tonight who don't yet know you as their king, that you'd be at work in their lives, showing them the wonder of your cross and resurrection and calling them to follow you. We ask all this in Jesus' name, for his sake.